Dr. Jim Jeffrey has pastored for 26 years. He's pastored in the states of New York, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan. After he graduated from Baptist Bible College in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, Northeast Pennsylvania. After he graduated, he went on to get a Master of Religious Education degree at Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, and then he went on to do doctoral studies at Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, Grace Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. And then in the year 2001, he was called to become the president of Baptist Bible College. He's held that post now for those many years, and the Lord's used him greatly in that ministry. Dr. Jeffrey is married to his wife, his high school sweetheart, Bert, Alberta. They were married in 1973. They have three children, Daniel, Amy, Rachel, three children-in-law, and 11 grandchildren. When you talk to him, he's got hobbies, some really special hobbies that some of you can identify with. His hobbies include riding his Harley-Davidson with his wife on her Harley-Davidson. That's pretty good. Downhill skiing, golfing, reading, landscaping. But he carries a really busy schedule, and the Lord uses him as he travels worldwide. They have an impacting ministry that takes him across the world for the school and in mission endeavors that he's involved in as well. The ministry of that school has impacted some on our own staff. Some of our pastors here are graduates of Baptist Bible College. Brad Harba, Pastor Harba, who heads up our evangelism ministry. Ben Davey, leading our college ministry. Nick Runlett, now leading our senior high youth ministry. All graduates of that school. It's a delight to have Dr. Jeffrey with us. Love to have you welcome him here by showing a colonial welcome. Let's ask Jim Jeffrey to come and preach the Word of God this morning. Thank you, brother, for your kindness. Thank you. It is a delight to be back at Colonial Baptist Church. Over the past 11 years, as I've um, traveled and spoken around the country, there have been uh, about five churches that I just love to come back to, and this is just right at the top, um, in part because of my friendship with your, your pastor, Dr. Stephen Davey. Good to see you here this morning. And um, in part because of the great kindness that was shown to me early after I became the president and receiving an honorary doctorate from your seminary here. But really the main part is because you people love the Word of God and you love the Christ of the Word of God. And it's just so refreshing to be in a church where people come hungry for, the, for biblical teaching and to share together. I have to tell you, I feel more secure here than ever, though, after seeing that Vacation Bible School introduction <laughs> and just knowing that we have the SIA here as well as your own security people. I would encourage you to be praying this week for your Vacation Bible School that lives will be changed, that children will trust Christ, grow in Christ, commit their lives to Christ because of the faithful service of so many. This ministry can be really eternally different in the lives of these children. I want to bring you greetings from the campus of Baptist Bible College and Seminary. If you're not familiar with where we are, Pennsylvania is a big rectangle. We're up in the northeast corner sitting on top of one of the Pocono Mountains with a beautiful view. We've been serving Christ for 80 years. We have graduates that have served our Savior in 54 different countries in all 50 states. And today, as God has expanded the impact of our, of our school, we not only have an undergraduate program uh, that includes 41 different um, accredited majors, 
We also have grad school uh, in education, counseling, and biblical ministries. Our seminary uh, has Master of Ministry, Master of Divinity, THM, Doctorate of Ministry, and PhD studies. One of the couple of new things about uh, going on our campus that I want to share with you, we will be dedicating this October a brand new building in honor of Dr. Wendell Kempton, a 62,000 square foot athletic center. We've also launched an online program for high school students. And I'd like to just uh, share with any of you that are high school students or you have uh, children or grandchildren that are in high school, this is a unique opportunity. Well, we're offering uh, biblical higher education for high school students in their junior and senior year of high school that will be dual enrolled. They'll get high school credit and college credit for $120 a credit hour. That's about the price of community college. And they will be able to get a total of two years of college done before they would come to our campus. If they come to BBC, we'll give them all that money back in scholarships. So it's really an incredible opportunity. You say, why would we do that? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, we really believe that this generation needs to be taught how to think biblically, how to put down roots in Scripture, to be able to really develop their biblical worldview and a a heart for God. It also, we're finding, is just a, a great, great way of partnering with parents and with homes to make a difference. I want to share with you that, that, that the series that you're in of seeing the hand of God, that theme, when, they, when I received word that that was going to be the focus for the summer series, I thought, what a great theme, seeing the hand of God. Because that's really just another way of saying living by faith. Because when you're living by faith, you are seeing the hand of God in your life. And I want to focus today our attention on what does it mean to see the hand of God in the circumstances of life that may shake your confidence. I start off with an illustration that's a little humorous, but I think you'll see really makes the point and takes us to where we want to go. When um, we moved from Indiana to Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1989 to take up the pastorate in a church there, one of the men on staff with me was a guy named Dan Austin. He's an outstanding guy. He actually serves at our seminary now. You need to know that Dan grew up in northern Michigan near Traverse City and is a great athlete and particularly skilled in downhill skiing. His son Greg had picked it up and when we moved there, my now teenage son learned to downhill ski, later actually taught downhill skiing. And so they kind of got after me and saying, Jim, Dad... Pastor, you need to try this. I said, no, I don't need to try this. After two years, I said, okay, one time, I'll go with you. We went to a place called Crystal Mountain up in northern Michigan. And uh, just imagine in your mind what those would look like for, at 41 years old, my size to be on the bunny hill with the little children. Rather embarrassing. Well, then, um, after I graduated from the bunny hill, you have to understand that in skiing, there are four different kind of slopes. There's green circles, that's for the beginner. There's blue squares, that's for intermediate skiers. There's black diamonds, which are for expert skiers, and there's double black diamonds, which are for insane people, in my opinion. (laughs) Well, Dan Austin takes me not to a green, but to a blue square. And up on the top of the mountain, we start heading down, and it was icy, And to complicate matters more, going down the right side of that slope, there was actually a race going on with pylons. Remember that fact. Over that race was where the chairlift was. 
So I was, I, I don't know how many times I fell the first time down the hill, and I finally said, Dan, you go ski with, with uh, your son and, and my son, Dan. Go enjoy it. I'll, I'll work on this. Because he had shown me how to do the snow plow, which is a, a great way to create great pain in your legs if you stay with it all day. And so I'm going down the hill the second time. And, and uh, somehow I couldn't make the turn from the left to the right, and I wound up doing what's called a yard sale right in the racetrack. A yard sale means you lose your skis, you lose your poles, and you lose your human dignity all at once. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dan Austin is riding with a complete stranger in the chairlift overhead, having conversation. Yeah, I'm here with a friend and his son. Matter of fact, there he is right there, just as I did the yard sale. And the guy says... Oh, him? I've been watching him. Is he having fun? <laughs> Meanwhile, the loudspeaker comes on saying, will the man in the green suit please get off the racetrack? And I'm saying, if you're not in the race, I'm saying, I'm just trying to stay in the human race right now. <laughs> well, over the next couple of years, I, and by the way, by the end of that day, I had a sprained body. I think every muscle in my whole body was sprained. And um, it was so painful, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lick this thing. I'm going to learn how to do it. And over the next years, I really didn't develop a great deal of confidence in skiing. And I would try it. I would work at it. What you need to know as we fast forward with each of our children, I had uh, decided through the a good counsel of a friend that when they got into their junior year of high school, I would begin to plan with them a dad trip, just for the two of us, kind of a, it was a spiritual bar mitzvah kind of a thing, where I would be turning them loose to get them ready for college in their senior year, and we would talk together about what we were going to do on the trip in their junior year, and then have the trip in their senior year. Our youngest daughter wanted to go on a missions trip and went to India with me for two and a half weeks, incredible life-changing experience. Our middle daughter, Amy, wanted to go to Paris, France. We went to Toronto, Canada. (laughs) And our son wanted to go skiing in Colorado in the Summit County area where there's like six different major ski resorts and ski a different one every day. And I'm just terrified thinking about this, but it's what he wanted to do, and so I'm I'm committed to doing it. Uh, One of the couples in our church in Grand Rapids um, came to me and said, listen, the, the lady's dad actually with her mom, wintered right in that area of Colorado. Call him, ski with him, it'll be a great experience. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. Actually, this man, Len, had been a professional baseball player, a little league coach, and an outstanding skier. He was in his 70s at this time, and if you could see him go down the most difficult mountains, he was, he was really good, but he was a very good teacher. And for the rest of the time that I was there, he skied with me training me and coaching me. At night, he would show me videos of how to ski. And because I wasn't doing it right during the day, that's why he was showing me the videos at night. And I found out something that really was a life lesson, not just a skiing lesson. Skiing, like life, is counterintuitive. What I mean by that, there's things that the way my mind would go when I thought about skiing is that You want to put your weight uphill because you don't want to slide downhill. Wrong. Or you want to put as much surface on the hill as you can with your skis so that you have more surface to stay stable. Wrong. What I discovered that was counterintuitive to me about skiing is all of your stability and security is on the inside edge of the downhill ski. That you can face almost any kind of terrain 
no matter how steep the mountain, if you cut that inside edge of the downhill skiing, you can be confident that you can get to the bottom of the mountain. I didn't come to talk to you about skiing today, though. I came to talk to you about seeing the hand of God in the circumstances of your life and my life that can really shake our confidence. I've lived long enough and I've pastored long enough to know that in this room right here, there are people that are facing life circumstances that are shaking your confidence seriously. Some of you have just been to the doctors this week and the news you received is not good. Others of you are facing in your marriage great difficulty that's racking your confidence. You may have a son or a daughter that's breaking your heart, extended family issues that are just causing you great pain. Some, it is an employment or an unemployment issue, something happening on the job or not having a job. It may be just watching the economy and watching world events or watching the politics or seeing what's happening in our world morally and just just really feeling the anxiety and it's shaking your confidence. Maybe something deep inside personally or spiritually that you're facing that's shaking your confidence. I hope by the end of this time together that you will discover that God has made provisions for you to live with confidence no matter what you face in your life. We're going to be turning to the book of 2 Timothy and be looking at the first chapter. And as you turn there with me, I want to give you a context of what was happening behind the scenes in the book of 2 Timothy and why this subject of confidence is so very real to what Paul is teaching us in this book by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, when Paul is writing this, he is writing his last letter. He's in a dungeon, the Mamertime dungeon in Rome, and he is not under house arrest like he was before. And when he wrote to, to the believers in Philippi, he said that he thought he would be released from prison. Now, when you get to the last chapter of Second Timothy, he said, the time of my departure, of my death is at hand. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And not long after Paul wrote this, church historians tell us that he was taken from that dungeon, out the Appian Way, and beheaded for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's facing in his life. Probably a little more difficult than what you and I are facing today. Why was that happening? Nero, the emperor of Rome, on this day, July 29th, in the year 64 AD, decided that in order to do urban redevelopment, he was going to torch part of the city. When you and I think of Rome, we often think it was all marble and columns, but there was a lot of wooden tenement houses in Rome. And Nero, in order to clear that out, to create more of the grandeur of Rome, had someone torch the city. A word began to spread that perhaps it was uh, Nero that did it, and you can imagine his gallop poles went way down. So he had to find someone to blame, and he blamed the Christians. Up until now, the persecution of the church had been very localized, often because of Jews that had rejected the gospel, sometimes because of local authorities. But now, the iron fist of Rome in the entire Roman Empire made every Christian, and especially Christian leaders, hunted. They would be jailed, tortured, lands and property and businesses confiscated, They were taken to the great arenas of the major cities of the Roman Empire, covered with animal skins, while wild animals were let loose on them. 
They were crucified outside the walls of all these major cities. And in Rome itself, Nero had Christians tied to poles in his gardens, covered with tar, and put on fire while he rode his chariots through the gardens. This was a day that could shake your confidence. And it is in this day that Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy, his son in the faith, he begins in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. Paul, who had been a persecutor of the church, now an apostle of Christ, and he's now as a dying man saying, I claim to the promise of life that I have in Christ. He's writing to Timothy, his beloved son, who he had mentored and discipled in Christ and in ministry, and then praise grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. As we think of the book of 2 Timothy, I want to give you four words to kind of help you think through this book because I really believe that they sum up each of the chapters. Chapter 1, confidence. Chapter 2, faithfulness. Chapter 3, truth. Chapter 4, endurance. And those four words, you have the core substance of each of the chapters in 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, is confidence, chapter 2, faithfulness, chapter 3, truth, chapter 4, endurance. And today, we're going to look at chapter 1 and and give you an overview of what he's talking about. I want you to notice, first of all, a phrase that is repeated. As you study your Bibles, you want to pay attention to phrases or words that are repeated in a a passage of Scripture. And in verse 8, Paul challenges Timothy not to be ashamed, that's the word, of the testimony of our Lord. Verse 12, Paul said, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Same word used a second time. Verse 16, when Cyphorus was not ashamed of my chain. When I find in the Bible a word that is repeated like that in a given passage of scripture, it's telling me what the focus is, what the emphasis is. Paul, when he says, don't be ashamed, I'm not ashamed, when Cyphorus was not ashamed, is not saying, don't be embarrassed. That's not what the word means. What it does mean is, don't lose your confidence. Don't lose your edge of your confidence in the downhill ski. Don't lose that. Don't lose the source of your confidence. And Timothy was, according to what we read, a timid and naturally fearful young man. That's why Paul says to him, Timothy, uh, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He encourages them not to be afraid in this passage. When I look at that, the question then is, well, how can I not be afraid? How can I keep my confidence when I'm facing what I'm facing, Paul? With what's going on with Nero, or for you and I this morning, with what's going on in our world? And, and Paul, in answering that question, gives us five, five things that God has given to us, spiritual resources that he has given to us. And by the way, it was interesting to me, to me as we sang the hymns and songs this morning, many of these were really in the content of what we worshiped about this morning, I think you'll see. The first thing that I want you to notice on here that will help you keep your edge of confidence is prayer. And Paul, in verses 3 to verse 5, focuses on prayer. He tells us how he prayed in verse 3 and 4 and what he prayed about in verse 5. Let's look at how he prayed. 
He said, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing remembering you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I might be filled with joy. Paul is really mentoring Timothy and us in prayer. He's saying, Timothy, I want to tell you about my prayer life. Here's how I pray. That helps me keep confidence. I pray with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is reflecting back to God his grace with a grateful heart. That's what thanksgiving really is. And then he said, I prayed to the God that I serve. That's the word from which we get our word liturgy. It's talking about worship or praise, what we did this morning. It's interesting that Paul starts off talking about prayer and saying, Timothy, as I try to live with confidence in this dungeon, I'm living with confidence because I'm praying with thanksgiving and with worship. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 wrote to those believers and said, be anxious for nothing but by everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The psalmist models for us that no matter what you're experiencing in life, you can come to God, pour out your heart, but then allow him to pour back in the reminder of who he is. I'm amazed as I look at the psalm book and prayer book of Israel and the psalms, how often the psalmist focuses on the attributes of God, the names and titles of God, focuses on the works of God to encourage his own confidence in God and what he was facing, and, and Paul does that. He also said that he prayed with a pure conscience. Paul's not claiming here sinless perfection, but he is saying, I keep short accounts, or as we used to call it, I'm on praying ground. He's saying, I, I, may, I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. I confess my sins regularly because while God answers every prayer that he hears, sometimes yes, no, wait, I, I thought you'd never ask, God doesn't hear every prayer according to the Bible because he said, if, you, if I regard iniquity in my heart, Psalm 66, 18, the Lord will not hear me. So Paul said, when I pray, I work at keeping my conscience clear, keeping short accounts with God. Then he said, I pray without ceasing. Later, he said, I prayed night and day. Most of us have on our cars these days intermittent windshield wipers. And you might be in a, in a kind of rain, not the rain like last night. By the way, I really enjoyed that welcoming I got in town last night. But, but an intermittent wiper that is on may not be going all the time, but it's on. In the same way, prayer without ceasing doesn't mean I'm praying 100% of the time, but I'm in an attitude of humble dependence upon God, and I'm praying often. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, most prayers ought to be cut short on both ends and set on fire in the middle. It's not how long your prayers are, but how frequent your prayers are that Paul's talking about here. Most of the prayers in the Bible are not long, but Paul said, I prayed frequently. Why? Because that keeps my confidence. It helps me to keep that confidence. He said, I also prayed with a heartfelt way. I was greatly desiring to see you. That's, that's an expression of his heart. I was mindful of your tears that I might be filled with joy. Prayer is heart talk. You know, when you're anxious, you can do more than pray after you pray, it has been said, but you cannot do more than pray before you pray and facing the challenges that you have. And thoughts of anxiety or worry in your life ought to be like a light going on on the dashboard saying, it's time to pray right now. Right now, if, 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 it's, if it's enough to be causing me to be anxious, it's time to pray. You ever get woken up in the middle of the night of something that you're anxious about and your mind is just going? I think that God often wakes us up to get us to pray right then about the concern that's on our heart. 
I want you to notice, though, the focus of Paul's prayer. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you. It's interesting to me that the focus of Paul's prayer for Timothy is his faith. He said your genuine faith, the word literally means your non-hypocritical faith. It's not simply putting on an act, but it is real. It's not veneer, it's real wood. Timothy, your faith is genuine, like it was in your grandmother and your mother. You know, Paul didn't pray, God, keep Timothy from suffering. What he did pray is, God, guard the faith. You know, in our, in our lives, we often say, God, get me out from this problem. Get me out from under this pressure. Remove the circumstances. And God may or may not do that. Jesus in the upper room, when he told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me, said this, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. I I wonder if that's not a part of the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus right now today, that as you and I are going through those things that can shake our confidence, if, if our Savior in heaven isn't praying over us and saying, Help them to keep their confidence in me. And in prayer, we do that as we focus on that, focus on our faith. I want you to notice, secondly, that Paul not only talks about prayer helping our confidence, but he then describes the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I remind you to stir up or to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Later in verse 14, he talks about keeping by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Not only has God given to us prayer as an access to the throne of grace that we might find grace to help in time of need, but he's also given to us his Holy Spirit. And Paul says, fan that into flame like you would a fire that was gone down to the embers and you fan it into flame again. Or like the high priest in the Old Testament that would every morning and every night have to rekindle the fire on the altar. Uh, Paul is saying rekindle the passion of God that's, that's fueled by the Spirit in your life, the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that God, when you, were, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, that, that, that was the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And at that very moment, you were baptized into Christ and into the body of Christ. You were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit in you teaches you, that helps you in your prayer life, gifts you for ministry, guides you, fills you, and as you walk by the Spirit, actually is able to reproduce the likeness of Jesus Christ in you. I want you to understand that God never intended that we would try to face those downhill slopes in our life in our own power, but that our confidence would be in God and that the Holy Spirit that is in you, we sang about the Trinity this morning, and one of those was talking about the Comforter, the one who's come alongside to be able to help us in our Christian life. What an encouragement. Listen, if you were to come to Clark's Summit to visit our campus, you'd either access by Route 81 or by the turnpike that comes up as an extension from Philadelphia, and you'd you'd have to go uphill to come to our campus. One of the main roads that you would go up was called Abington Road, and it goes straight up. And uh, if you were to come to our campus and you saw me pushing my Honda Pilot up that hill, I hope you'd stop and, and say, are you out of gas? And if I said, no, I've got plenty of fuel. 
Is your car broke? No, this is what I do every day. I push my car up the hill to the office. I push it back down the hill. When I go to the store, I push my car. You might begin to wonder. And if you said, well, show me the keys, and I show you the keys, and you put them in the ignition, and you turn the switch, and I say, what is that noise? I've never heard that before. You'd be right to question my sanity and whether I ought to be leading anything on this planet. You'd be right. You say, well, that's ludicrous. My friends, that's no more ludicrous than me trying to live the Christian life in my own power. It's no more ludicrous. When the power of God who created heaven and earth that raised Jesus from the dead indwells me, that dependence on the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that's why Paul says God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, timidity, anxiety, but instead power, love, and of a sound mind. The Holy Spirit takes away our fears. Because the only, the only fear that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us is the fear of God. Reverent, respect, submission, and worship to God. Instead, he takes, and he takes away every other fear, and he gives us three things in place. Power, because when I'm afraid, I don't feel sufficient to be able to handle the problems of life. I don't have the strength, the might to do it. He gives me his power. He gives me love because when I'm afraid, I become very self-absorbed in fear. And, I, and I'm not able to love God because his perfect love casts out fear or to love other people in that moment. I want to, you watch it. The next time you're afraid, really afraid, you can't focus on loving God or loving other people. The Holy Spirit produces that love in us and of a sound mind, disciplined thinking, so that my mind is being continually reprogrammed by the Word of God so I'm thinking biblically. The Holy Spirit uses the word to change the way I think. And so the Holy Spirit is in us to give us power, love, and of a sound mind. Right in the middle of a crisis, right in the middle of the things that would shake your confidence. God is with you and will never leave you or forsake you in the middle of that. So he's given to us prayer. He's given to us the Holy Spirit. Here's a third thing, beginning at verse 8. He's given to us the gospel itself. He said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord that's referencing the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul is not saying I'm Nero's prisoner. I'm Christ's prisoner in his sovereign plan for my life to advance the gospel. With the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God that he had just talked about in verse 7. And then as he begins to talk about the gospel, he said he has saved us, rescued us, and called us with the same gospel, with a holy calling. Please understand, the gospel is not only the message that delivers us from sin and its consequences, but the gospel is what sanctifies us. The Christian life is lived as we live out the gospel from day to day. Because it is our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection that is the very dynamic of Christian living. And interesting that Paul begins to talk about that. He says, it's not according to our works. This gospel doesn't focus on human efforts, but according to his own purpose and grace. We sang this morning, amazing grace. Are you amazed by the grace of God this morning? Are you still amazed by that? Do you understand that it's nothing that you could ever do that could merit favor with God? That what we deserved was a Christless eternity in hell under the wrath of God. And that we could never by our own works turn the corner on that. We could never change that. No turning over a new leaf. No religion could ever do that. It's only what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he became our substitute. It's only what he did when he rose from the dead. And that it is by his grace alone that we are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. I'll tell you that I did not grow up in a church like this. 
My, my first 10 years of my life were lived in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut, right down on Long Island Sound. My parents were regular attenders and involved in church. Mom taught Sunday school, dad ushered. But our church was an extremely liberal church. I never remember the Bible being taught. I never remember the gospel being proclaimed. Our assistant pastors came from Yale Divinity School, not exactly the citadel of biblical conservative Christianity. And as, as I grew up in that setting, I, if you had asked me what I believed, I didn't really believe God sent anybody to hell, and I wasn't sure I believed that there was a heaven. If you asked me about what I thought about salvation, I thought that God, if I stood before his judgment, would have a set of scales. One side was the good things I did, the other was the bad things that I did. That's how I thought about life. When I was 10, we moved to upstate New York, and a couple years later, a new pastor came to our small country church. First time I ever saw somebody stand in the Bible and teach the Bible, believing it. He took an interest in our family and took an interest in me and encouraged me with his son to go to a camp that's in Goldsboro, Pennsylvania, a half hour from where I now live. My wife and I regularly ride our Harleys out there at least once a year to stop and remember that that's where I trusted Christ the Savior. Now, you need to know that as a camper at that camp, about 12 years old, I was a rascal. I was, I was probably one of the worst practical jokers in my cabin, including taking our counselor while he was asleep, all of our belts, tying him in his sleeping bag and pulling him out and leaving him by the flagpole. If you have one of those kind of kids at home, there's hope. <laughs> Friday night, campfire. Students, young people making decisions for Christ. I've never seen anything like that. I turned to a friend of mine that was in the cabin about 12 years old as well, and I said, what are these kids doing? And he said, they're trusting Christ as personal Savior. I said, what do you mean? He said, why aren't you saved? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Campfire was done. Everybody kind of dissipated and went to play miniature golf or ping pong or go to the pool or go to the snack shack. And he took me aside as a 12-year-old with his New Testament into the tabernacle and led me to Jesus Christ that night. And I want to tell you, that night, my life was eternally saved because I found out I didn't have any good things on that side of the scales, and God didn't have those kind of scales. All I had was my sin. There was no righteousness in me. And that what I deserved was eternally separated from God. And that what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that that was not a martyrdom or a mistake. It was the sovereign plan of God to provide for the redemption of mankind. And Jesus Christ became my substitute, died for me. And I want you to know, that was the best news I ever heard. And it's still the best news I ever heard. I hope it is for you too. I hope it is for you too. And frankly, if you're here and you've not trusted in Christ and you're trusting in your works, then you'll never have real confidence in life and you'll never know the joy of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Paul says, listen, this is not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace given to Christ before time began, now revealed by his appearing, that incarnation we sang about of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior of Jehovah, the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through his death and resurrection. Paul said, I've been appointed a preacher, the the herald of the king, Jesus, in this message, an apostle, the official representative of the gospel, and a teacher of this gospel to the Gentiles. And then I love verse 12. For this reason, Paul said, I'm suffering these things. 
Nevertheless, he said, I am not ashamed. I'm not losing my edge. I'm not losing my confidence. Why? He doesn't say, because I know what I have believed. I know who I have believed. And I am persuaded and convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Anybody hearing the echo of a hymn here this morning? Great song based on this. Listen, think about this. Whatever problem you may be facing that may be shaking your confidence, the worst problem you've ever had was solved on the cross of Calvary and in the empty tomb. The most precarious situation in your life was solved there. And because of what God did for you there, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Isn't that good news today? The gospel gives us confidence. The gospel is not just something that happened to me at my conversion. It is, according to Paul in Ephesians 6, the shoes I stand in today in the battle. It helps me to stand firm and keep my edge. Then Paul says, the fourth thing that God's given to you is doctrine. Verse 13, hold fast, keep your grip on this. The pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me, Paul's teaching, in faith and love, that's the result of sound doctrine that are in Christ Jesus, that good thing, meaning that doctrine which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. All through the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, this phrase, sound doctrine, is used. The word sound literally means health-giving, health-producing, uh, spiritual health food. When I grew up in upstate New York, after I was 10 years old, my dad had a large garden. The farmer that I worked for had a garden, and we were into organic before it was cool to be into organic. And I want to tell you, healthy food, healthy food. Paul is saying, listen, you want spiritual health food? You'll find it in the teachings of the Bible. In your challenges of life, go to the Word of God, dig in, Understand that the relationship between belief and behavior is direct. What you believe because of knowing what you believe will give you confidence. And that whole dynamic of the Christian life, because in, in, in our day and age in the American church, there is a de-emphasis on doctrine, on the importance of biblical teaching. And it is extremely dangerous. It's not only dangerous because of heresy, and a lack of biblical discernment, it's also dangerous for Christian living because you don't have that inside edge. Doctrine is actually studying what the Bible teaches about the nature of God, the personal work of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, about what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to understand sin and salvation, to understand the word of God itself or God's eternal plan? Whatever the Bible teaches, that's the content and as in Ephesians, Paul gives us doctrine for three chapters, then gives us practice, belief, behavior. Does the same thing in Romans and in all of his letters. It's very clear in the New Testament that if you're going to live with confidence, you must feed your faith so doubt will starve to death. Feed your faith and doubt will starve to death. By the way, you are a blessed people in this church. Because when you come, you are taught expository preaching that exposes the doctrinal content of the Word of God. And when you walk out of the door, you have something to believe for that next week. That's important. The final thing that Paul gives us here that, to give us confidence in facing the challenges of our life is fellowship. It starts off very sad in verse 15 when he says, This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. This is Paul who invested in his life in so many people in so many places. 
And he said, among those are Phygelus and Hermogenes. How would you like to have your name listed in the Bible as somebody who went AWOL on Paul at his time of need? Like Demas in chapter 4, who, who departed from him. But then in contrast, he said, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. In contrast to those who weren't there for Paul, Onesiphorus was. I like this phrase, refreshed me. It's the word from which we get our word refrigeration. I've noticed in North Carolina, when you go into a building or in most of your homes, they are air-conditioned. Good thing this time of year, isn't it? I don't think I'd want to have a car down here that's not air-conditioned. So you go into your air-conditioned home, and you go to your refrigerator, and you get out sweet tea. I've discovered that in my visits to North Carolina. You folks know how to make iced tea down here, sweet tea. And guess what? As you go into your air-conditioned home and you open your refrigerator and get your sweet tea, you are refreshed. And Paul is saying, that's kind of the spiritual effect of Onesiphorus on me. He refreshed me by his fellowship. And he goes on to say, he was not ashamed of my chain. Third time that's used. He, was, he hadn't lost confidence in what God was doing in my life. He understood the purposes of God. When he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Now picture this. Where's Paul? In a dungeon. What's going to happen to him? He's going to be martyred and decapitated. What does Onesiphorus do? He comes to the city of Rome, a city of a million people, and he's walking the streets and alleys and saying, anybody know where Saul of Tarsus is? Anybody know where the apostle Paul is? You talk about a death wish? He, he said, he actually zealously sought me out and he found me. Which, by the way, is why I think Paul says, God grant mercy to his household, his family, in verse 16. And then God grant him mercy in verse 18. It seems to imply that he too was arrested and he too would be martyred. And Paul said, this brother, Onesiphorus, he very well, he, you know very well how he ministered to me at Ephesus and he ministered to me. Here's what I want you to see. Confidence comes in prayer. Confidence comes in the ministry of the Spirit. Confidence comes through the gospel. Confidence comes in doctrine. But confidence also comes in fellowship and that's why we need the church. That's why we need one another. You see, in, the most, in a lot of places in the world, in Asia... In Africa and South America, there seems to be an understanding of the need for living in community, but our individualistic approach to life in the United States kind of goes against that. And so people kind of see the church as consumers, and they come and go, and not understanding we need one another in the church. We need relationships that are deep and real. That's why you have ABFs in the church or small group Bible studies, because you need one another. And the time to find a friend, to find a onesiphorus in your life, is not when you're in a crisis. It's before you head into the crisis. It's those relationships that I call 2 a.m. friends. When a crisis hits you at 2 o'clock in the morning, you've got somebody you can call. Do you? I want to tell you, in my life, I've faced some challenges. There's been things that have racked my confidence, and there are friends I can call on the phone, and they would be there for me, and they would, they would minister to me. And, and I may be a pastor, and I may be the president of a college, but I'm still a human being with needs, and I need the church, and I need relationships, and so do you. Your confidence comes from fellowship. Well, let me tell you the rest of the story. A couple years later, my wife and I go to Colorado to ski. Len's still living there, takes me out day after day, and is training me in downhill skiing. And there comes 
the last day that we're there, he takes me to the edge of a black diamond. You need to understand in Colorado, a black diamond would be equal to a double black diamond in Michigan. Remember what I said about double black diamonds? That's for crazy people. And he looks at me and says, I think you can do this. And I said, are you really sure? He says, yeah, I really think you can do this. So we go over the edge of a very high mountain with three different levels to it. And as soon as we go over the edge and I turn and look at him, his eyes are about that big around because there's a couple things he wasn't aware of on that mountain, three of them. Number one, it was icy. Number two, there were moguls in the middle, bumps. And number three, there were a lot of other skiers on there. And I prayed right then. And I just reminded myself, inside edge of downhill ski, inside edge of downhill, make your turn, inside edge of downhill ski. I was actually saying it out loud, inside edge of downhill ski, inside edge of downhill ski. And, and I'm telling you, I made it to the bottom of there without killing myself or anybody else in the process. I'm not sharing that story with you because I'm a good skier. I'm really not. Matter of fact, that's a one and only black diamond I probably will ever do in my life in Colorado. My point is this. The confidence you need in life isn't in you. It's in God. And the inside edge of your confidence and your trust in God comes through prayer. It comes through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It comes through the gospel. It comes through feeding your soul doctrine. It comes through fellowship. And God doesn't leave you alone in your troubles. He doesn't leave you alone on the mountain. He's there to help you. You may be here today and you've never trusted Christ the Savior. Your confidence is misplaced, I will tell you that. You need to find your confidence in Christ. But if you're a believer and you're facing your mountain, whatever it is this week, remember, God loves you and will not leave you alone on that mountain. He'll be there with you as you pray to him, to the indwelling Holy Spirit, through your standing in the gospel, through feeding your soul doctrine, through fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your inspired words penned by Paul, not only for Timothy, but for our benefit. And Father, I pray, whatever your people are facing this week, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would strengthen their faith, that they would not lose their confidence, because you are worthy of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 